I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Here is the much-requested audio recording of the Instagram Live with Brian Peck, titled Religious Trauma or Spiritual Abuse. Religious trauma or spiritual abuse are often used interchangeably. But is there a difference? And if there is, why might that difference be important? I had a conversation in Instagram Live with Brian Peck from the Religious Trauma Institute. After the Instagram Live, I received many requests from folks asking if I would make this audio available on the podcast. So I'm doing that now. Keep in mind, this is a recording of a recording, so the quality might not be amazing, but hopefully the content will make up for that. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden. Tears of Eden is a nonprofit providing a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. For the past couple months, we've been piloting our first online group of survivors. We meet once a month on Zoom to discuss trauma and the unique aspects of spiritual abuse. And then we've been continuing the conversation in a private Facebook group. We're piloting this group in hopes that we'll be able to make this accessible to anyone who needs it and wants it. In other news, we're also going to have our first virtual gala in September. We're in the process of putting this together now, and I'll give you more details as the date draws closer. This will be a focused time for sharing the work of Tears of Eden and what this organization is about and what we hope for in terms of caring for survivors of spiritual abuse. Here is my conversation with Brian Peck discussing the difference between religious trauma and spiritual abuse. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good, good, good. I am in the middle of moving, so this is the only area of my house that does not have stuff <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Oh it's goodness. all thrown over there. Yeah. So no one can nice. Yeah, moving yeah. is such a challenge. Yeah, oh. it's, it can be a good exercise to kind of sort through <laughs> things and get rid of stuff. But goodness, yes, yeah, it's, it's I definitely love, a challenge. I love de-junking, yeah. but having yeah. to do it all at once is, is yeah. a lot for it sure. Lot, for for sure. sure, yes. Yeah. But I'm excited about this to like kind of take yeah, me out for sure. Talk yeah. about things that I love that I'm super passionate about. So. Um, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because I keep seeing religious trauma and then spiritual abuse mm -hmm. and it pops up on Instagram all the time. Yeah. People use both of those terms kind of interchangeably at the same time. And so um, I started making an info video about mm. just the difference between the two. And as I was making the video, yeah. I was like... I'm not sure I even know yeah, <laughs> what the difference sure. is between the two. So yeah. I wanted to have this conversation with you yeah. to parse out those terms, talk about the difference between those two, and then why that difference might be important for naming that experience. So, um, yeah, just by way of introduction, I'm Catherine. Uh, I host the Uncertain Podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to challenging the church to do better. And then I'm one of the founding members of Tears of Eden, which is a nonprofit dedicated to caring for survivors of spiritual abuse, yeah. uh, which I am also one. And yeah, so that's kind of what brings me here. I would love to hear just your intro of who you are yeah. and what you do. For sure. Well, I, I first want to just say that um, 
I'm always getting introduced to new podcasts and resources. And um, so I was really glad to to meet you. And I've actually listened to a few of your episodes. And awesome. I, I certainly really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'll be recommending your, your podcast to others as well. well thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my name is Brian Peck. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And I have a private practice here in Boise, Idaho. And my specialty is I'm working with uh, survivors of religious trauma. Um, as well as folks who have been harmed by religion in other ways um, that may not, you know, rise to the, the level of trauma, um, and also, you know, helping folks navigate the uh, faith deconstruction process as well. And, mm. um, yeah, and so that's uh, what I do full-time. In addition, I'm one of the co-founders of the uh, Religious Trauma Institute with my yes. colleague, Dr. Laura Anderson, and um, we're developing clinical resources for uh, mental health professionals, um, have you know a, a collaborative research group as well of graduate students from across the world and um, academic researchers studying religious trauma um, as well as providing resources for survivors and um, phase three or four will be providing harm reduction resources to spiritual communities uh, religious Oof. groups and leaders as well so yeah that's a big one so, uh, yeah that's a big yeah, one so i think we, we share a lot of similar <laughs> passions it sounds like absolutely absolutely yeah and this kind of stuff is important and i'm glad that you're providing just resources for practitioners too mm -hmm. because that's something that comes up a lot is just like yeah. i have a therapist but then mm -hmm. they don't understand this yeah nuance in this aspect of yeah. it and we kind of end up having to educate ourselves right. on this and so that's awesome i'm excited to hear about yeah. that yeah yeah sure. yeah it, it does seem like it's fairly common for therapists to be really good at working with trauma and really skilled in their practice um, but without that understanding of um, spiritual abuse religious trauma how that um, presents differently and, mm -hmm. and the ability to be sensitive to that and support survivors so we're hoping that with a, a few clinical trainings, um, a couple of additional mm -hmm. resources, we can at least give them enough foundation that they can be a better resource to their clients. So, yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I'm really excited to yeah. partner with you today on this. So let's start with just the difference between abuse and trauma. How would you describe yeah. one or the other? Yeah. So I think it's important for us to just, you know, maybe... Um, broaden out the context a little bit you know the whole area of studying trauma is, is a fairly recent area of study uh, humans have been experiencing trauma you know since the beginning uh, we've experienced you know spiritual abuse religious abuse religious trauma you know since the beginning of organized religion of course and yet our understanding of that it is a fairly new area of, of study uh, trauma mm -hmm. is a challenging concept to um, define because it can refer to the thing that happened to you um, it can refer to your experience in the moment, um, but more clinically, as we you know describe trauma in, in the mental health field, is it's, it's the ongoing impact of that experience. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, technically, um, if you just go by the dictionary definitions, um, you know, a lot of things can be referred to as trauma, which I think uh, creates a bit of confusion. If we think about abuse uh, as a thing that happens to you the experience that you have um and then trauma is your physiological response to that and the ongoing impacts of that typically uh, when we experience something that overwhelms our nervous system our body will go into a survival response um, if we're able to fight enough to get to safety to defend ourselves if we're able to escape to safety then um, that doesn't result in trauma as we define trauma in a clinical setting 
because that that survival response is resolved. You you've done what was necessary mm. to escape that, and that the lingering effect that that powerlessness that persists when that survival response is not resolved, um, that tends to be what what we're talking about when we re refer to trauma. And so, um, if we think about just in the very in very simplistic terms, you know, abuse is what happened to you. Trauma is your physiological response to that. And if that's, you know, if it's unresolved, if you don't, you know, you know, escape to safety, find a sense of safety and strength and connection after that, um, then that will persist as this unresolved survival response, um, which often presents as a feeling of powerlessness. Um, folks can get stuck inside of a more activated state, um, you know, hypervigilant, on edge, um, but also more commonly the, a please appease or a freeze collapse response, um, you know, that, 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 that can be a really common um, you know, form of trauma, uh, a, a presentation of trauma after the event. When you say that it's it's lingering and it's unresolved, so say like you're in an abusive situation and you do leave, but then there's still that, you're still traumatized on the other sure. side of that. Yes. So the resol resolution isn't necessarily like a one-step thing. Right. And, it, and it's not the absence of threat. Um, you know, I think in, in the this is why uh, becoming more trauma-informed is so helpful for our society because we can think about leaving an abusive situation and then we might assume, well, I'm going to experience this new space of safety as, as being okay. Um, mm -hmm. We adapt very quickly to threat. Our nervous systems will respond instantly. If someone starts pounding on your door right now, um, you know you have no choice. But your heart will start to, you know, beat faster. Mm -hmm. You'll, you know, move into a more activated state. When we, when we leave an abusive situation, our nervous system doesn't just instantly adapt and adjust to that because it doesn't trust it yet. And so there is that. Mm it's not the absence of threat. Um, the absence of threat is not the same as the experience of safety. Uh, I think Stephen Porges um, said that. And and I think it's really important to recognize because we can yeah. assume, well, you're no longer part of that church, you're no longer part of that relationship. You should, you should, what's you should the big fine. deal? Yeah, what's the big deal, yeah. <laughs> and so then there's that, there's an earned sense of trust that our nervous system needs to, um, to gain. Um, and so finding how, how we resolve that trauma is, you know, finding new ways to, to experience, to embody um, new experiences that undermine those previous ones. And so um, mm. these tend to be um, ways of, you know, completing, of saying the things now that you wish you could have said then, of moving mm. in the world now the way you wish you could have um, moved then. And, and that begins to um, develop a sense of trust in yourself. And, and that's, yeah, that, that process is slower. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it makes sense from a evolutionarily adaptive survival perspective that we can adjust quickly to threat uh, the better safe than sorry right. kind of mechanism um, and that it takes us a while to adjust to safety um, but we can do that and we can be intentional about that um, yeah yeah absolutely yeah I uh, my sister got married this past weekend and the there was this moment where I'm a bridesmaid and I'm standing on the stage and the the uh, initial just like wedding ceremony was super, super short. There wasn't like this long homily or sermon, but just that religious language mm -hmm. that happened in yeah. that, in that context sure. uh, and then being in a church, mm -hmm. like I felt just like the panic yeah. start to come in. And I, and in, in that, like, I'm like, even just like mentally talking to myself, okay, this is trauma. You're yeah. getting triggered. <laughs> this is not bad. Yeah. Sister wedding, this is fine, you know, but it's like, it's yeah. still happening inside of me. So that's like a, yeah. like the ongoing 
lingering residual effects of something that abuse that happens in a religious environment um on that note (laughs) because of yeah there's just that definition of spiritual abuse how would you define spiritual abuse and then how would you define religious trauma yeah so um I think I want to begin by saying that um, we're moving into an area where we'll be talking about definitions and words and mm-hmm. um, trying to, you know, figure out, like, what is this thing? Um, I'm more interested in how these things function for us than, you know, the categorizing and putting that language on them. That being said, I think language can be really helpful, especially mm-hmm. um, in and helping clarify like what it is that we are experiencing, what we can do about that. And so I think um, spiritual abuse, um, I've been following the research for a while and um, there really is no one definition of spiritual mm-hmm. abuse. And so a couple that I, I jotted down here, and actually I'll drop them in, in the comments after um, our, Great. our um, Instagram live today. Um, so the one that resonates probably the most with me um, is... Um, the conscious or unconscious use of power to direct, control, or manipulate another's body, thoughts, emotions, actions, or capacity f- for choice, freedom, or autonomy of self within a spiritual or religious context. Mm. And and so I, I think, um, yeah, there is that element of using um, the power, the control of spiritual language, of spiritual authority to um, to limit you know, another person's ability to choose for themselves, um, to, um, th- there's a, a power and control dynamic to that. And um, it, it, it mimics in many ways, or, or looks very similar to intimate partner violence, uh, interpersonal abuse, those kinds of things. Um, you know, and, and we think about um, developmental trauma, especially, and I think it happens, um, it shares a lot of similarities with, um, with religious trauma. The person who is a, a source of strength and connection for you is also a source of abuse or neglect or harm. And um, if we think about what that does to a nervous system, we we are wired for connection. We, we want to move towards safety and support. And we also move away from adversive, um, harmful experiences. And so when the same person, the same community represents both for us, um, it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It can be paralyzing. Um, and... It, it, we don't know what to do with that. I mean, it really um, is, is difficult for our nervous system to navigate that. And so I, I think there is that, especially in religious and spiritual communities, there's, there's this kind of bringing people in and, you know, offering them a lot. And then um, in that space of vulnerability, that space of trust, um, that's when you can hurt someone the most. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I think that's, um, that's one of the reasons why... It, it tends to be a more complex form of trauma. It's not um, It's not always a single incident or something big and right. obvious. It tends to be, you know, this overarching sense of you're not good enough or, you know, um, I have more authority than you. I know more, I have more wisdom than mm-hmm. you. And you can't trust yourself, but you can trust me. And so I think a lot of that um, is is contributing to um, that that spiritual abuse, which then can you know result in, in in spiritual trauma or religious trauma. Yeah, I'm glad that you compared it to the family, like the developmental pro- mm-hmm. uh, sure. trauma in a family, because it is so similar. And like, and you use and in a religious environment, family language is used 
so much oh, and sure. the family hierarchy is the same right. yeah that's yeah. a good uh yeah good analogy for that that's great i, I uh, think before i describe or define religious trauma which i do have a more uh, concise well it's not concise but a, a more descriptive definition there um I think one of the reasons why spiritual abuse and spiritual trauma can be so difficult is because it it can be spiritualized, right? It, it's it's yes. it leaves the realm of the physical body and you know your 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 experience as a, as a human often, and, and I think that makes it challenging. Then folks maybe will assume, well, this is a, a spiritual problem that can be resolved in a spiritual context. Mm. Um, yeah. As a as a trauma therapist, I I. I don't. I mean, I, I recognize spiritual abuse for sure, and I recognize mm -hmm. the impacts of that. However, how I see that presenting is in a nervous system, is in a physical body, um, is very connected to our humanity. And when we um, when we talk about it in that way, we begin to um, you know take it away from the spiritual realm, where you know you need to go to your spiritual advisors or leaders, you know, solve that inside of a, a religious context. And, and realize that, you know, you're a human having a very natural response to an unnatural um, experience. And we're not going to resolve that by praying more. Um, we're not going to resolve that by, you know, sorting out and coming up with new theology necessarily. That, that can all be helpful and useful. Um, but we need to address that at the, at the point of the nervous system in order for us to, mm. um, to resolve that. And so I think... Um, that's one of my concerns with um, spiritual or yeah, spiritual abuse, spiritual trauma is um, it, it almost assumes that it's a spiritual issue that needs to be addressed in this. Right. Realm. And, mm -hmm. and in my experience, that is, is, is typically not the case. Mm. On that note, uh, before you define, we get more into religious trauma. You said that you work with people who are in the deconstruction process. How, how common is spiritual abuse connected to the deconstruction process and how how are those intertwined and are are they intertwined yeah. at all and yeah i think it's, it's really hard to to make any um general statement about that because everyone's experience is unique um however mm -hmm. we can see some common themes um what what starts that deconstruction process for folks um often is you know something that got their attention something that wasn't right, something that wasn't okay. Um, maybe they experienced harm themselves or witnessed harm in, in that um, religious community. And, and then they begin to ask questions. If, if this isn't true, then what else isn't true? And, and mm -hmm. that can be, kind of begin that, that process for them. And so, so I think it is quite common that some form of, of, of control or spiritual abuse, um, you know, kind of kicks off that process for folks. Um, okay. If we're if we're doing okay in the community, uh, we're not asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, why would I even want to explore um, the theology right. and deconstruct religious beliefs when I realize how they aren't healthy for myself or others? Well, then you know that that, that creates a context that I I'm motivated to ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, I, I think those those two things are <clears throat> are related. Not always. Um, some folks will go mm -hmm. through a deconstruction process, you know, almost purely from a philosophical. Um, you know, point of interest. Others will go through that because, you know, their survival's at stake at some level. It's not safe for them where they're at. Um, and so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I certainly leave room for people to navigate that for lots of different reasons. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, because it does, like you said, 
it does kind of sometimes that will instigate that process mm. is that yeah. that um adverse religious experience yeah um, for sure yeah I I think one of the the challenges there is then um, folks in a religious community can easily dismiss that, you know, Mm -hmm. what's the common response to someone who has deconstructed their faith? Well, you know, you, you, who hurt you, you know, right. (laughs) This, Mm -hmm. this human let you down and now you're blaming God for that. And and Mm -hmm. it's very dismissive. Um, I, I don't know. I work with, you know, a lot of folks going through this process and, and, I don't know that I've ever met someone who hasn't taken it seriously, right. who hasn't really tried to make it work at some level before they realize it couldn't work for them anymore. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, I, I think um, the research, you know, shows that some of the, the work that Phil uh, Drysdale is doing, um, you know, actually doing some research collecting data around those uh, folks who are deconstructing, and and it's typically those who take it the most seriously. It's those who go to absolutely you know, yeah go to graduate school for religious studies or, you know, are really, you know, wanting to do their best in a religious community. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the folks who um, who discover that, um, you know, who, who see behind the curtain, as it were, or, or see how it isn't always functioning in a healthy way for them. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, if you want to maintain your faith, um, stay part of your religious community, um, it's probably helpful to just casually connect mm-hmm. uh, to enjoy the community piece of that but not not to take it too seriously um which is yeah it, it's just an interesting thing that happens for folks right yeah it's true because it does cost you a lot if people if you yeah. start to dig deeper for sure yeah, yeah. so uh religious trauma <laughs> yeah so, yeah, so, good. yeah so i think um religious trauma is is a concept that's um been developing over you know last well since you know i don't know since the 80s um folks began talking about these experiences inside of high control kind of fundamentalist um, Mm -hmm. religious um, environments and and the mental health impacts and effects of that um it's been called a lot of different things over time and um as part of the religious trauma institute we're, we're wanting to um provide a definition that's broad enough to capture the majority of folks' experiences, um, as well as, you know, narrow enough, precise enough mm-hmm. that it can be useful clinically as well as for research. And so the definition that, that we have right now is, is a working definition. Um, it probably will be modified over time. But it's the physical, emotional, or psychological response to religious beliefs, practices, or structures that is experienced by an individual as overwhelming or disruptive and has lasting adverse effects on a person's physical, mental, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Mm. I know that's a, that's a mouthful, um, but again, building that definition is it's it's not the thing itself that happened to you, but it's mm-hmm. it's that response to that, and, and it's a response that has the, those lasting effects for you. And so um, it's common for folks to think about, you know, the deconstruction process or leaving the fold as being, um, you know, you know, the same as, as religious trauma. And, and that can be, uh, but mm-hmm. folks can leave that, uh, leave a, a religious community um, with, with very little impact to them. Um, other folks can be devastated by that experience. It can result in trauma, um, but it's, it's, it doesn't equate to trauma in the same way that abuse isn't trauma. Um, you know, mm-hmm. adverse religious experiences aren't trauma. And in, which brings us to the adverse religious experiences mm-hmm. um, concept. 
when you talk to um, survivors of, of trauma, um, religious trauma or, or any form of trauma, it's really common for them to normalize their experience, to not see it as trauma. Um, <laughs> countless folks have told me something to the effect of, well, that was just what it was like in my church. You know, that, that's just how things yes. were in my family. I don't see that as abuse. I don't see that as harm. I don't see, I don't notice that my nervous system is constantly bracing, waiting for the next mm-hmm. shoe to drop. I don't realize that, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing trauma because of that. That's just how it was. Mm-hmm. And and I think the same thing is, is, is true for, you know, spiritual abuse or, or religious abuse. Absolutely. Like, well, you know, I wasn't, you know, physically assaulted. I wasn't, you know, you know sexually abused. And so it doesn't seem like it, it fits the category. I, I don't think my experience mm-hmm. was, was abuse. And, and so mm-hmm. I think the, the body of research around adverse childhood experiences has, has been so helpful. Mm-hmm. Because it's not pathologizing in the sense that, you know, parents getting divorced when you're young may or may not be, may or may not result in trauma, may or may not result in, you know, some negative impact to you mentally or physically and yet we recognize that it is an adverse religion it it, it is an adverse experience for many folks and when you begin to see the cumulative effect of two or three adverse childhood experiences um, we can predict fairly um, consistently that you're you're going to have some negative impact if there aren't also um, some of those protective factors built in as well and so we wanted to introduce uh, another concept that would, would kind of um, correlate with the adverse childhood experiences so that folks can see um, these experiences that I had in a religious context weren't okay for me. I don't feel comfortable calling them abuse. I, I don't know that I'm experiencing trauma from that. Um, but if we have several categories of those, we begin to see mm. like, oh, you know, I'm ticking four or five of these boxes here. Um you know, and I'm noticing what are some of the common responses to that? What are some of the impacts and effects of that? Um, I, I think that that allows folks to connect with how that experience wasn't healthy and safe for them. And, and they can more easily identify their experience without having to say, you know, I've experienced you know, spiritual abuse or religious yeah. trauma. And yeah. so, so our, our definition of adverse religious experiences is any experience of a religious belief, practice or structure that undermines an individual's sense of safety or autonomy and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, spiritual, or, or psychological well-being. And so again, it's a very broad um, mm-hmm. definition, uh, intentionally so. Um, yeah. As we begin to, we, we've done um, an exploratory um, survey just to get a sense of what are the kinds of adverse religious experiences folks have had. And what did they experience in the moment? What are the, the lasting impacts of that? Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, shame is the number one thing that folks experience um, um, as an adverse religious experience or connected to um, an experience where they've been harmed in a religious context. Um, and then disconnection, you know, distrust of our bodies. Um, we're, we're getting a lot of really good um, kind of data Mm-hmm. to then inform like what are these categories that we want to create that can help folks identify um you know how they've been harmed as well as to then help religious you know organizations and leaders um do better right i know that's, yeah. that's your that's your focus and, mm-hmm. and i really appreciate that if we can recognize that 
secrecy and different power control dynamics and the way shame is leveraged and how forgiveness functions in in these different things inside of religious communities then um then there's at least the opportunity for for organizations to do better um yeah and so that's yeah that's so adverse religious experience is kind of the no it's not necessarily a gateway term but but trauma and abuse are pretty big terms Sure. And yeah. when you have affection, like in a family system, you have affection for your family. In a sure. church system, you have affection for your church mm-hmm. family. Yeah. You don't want to call it trauma right. or abuse. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that seemed, I don't know if that is that the intention of that term to just give a little, like a little softer definition. Yeah. Maybe? I, I think in some ways it is it is a way of, of kind of lowering the bar for folks to consider um, their experience through a different lens. Um, you know, it it can be really powerful to recognize that what you experienced was abuse, and and when you have you know a safe person in your life, a therapist, uh, a safe loved one, who says you know you're telling your story and that wasn't okay, you know that was that was abuse just to hear another person validate that experience to say that it's hard for you to say that yourself. And and I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult, and I think this is really important and this, you know, factors into how spiritual abuse functions in communities. Um, You were just talking about this affection that we have for our family and for our community. And there is this desire to maintain that. I think through the attachment lens that, that need for that, that secure attachment to maintain that attachment is so uh, tied to our sense of survival that we would sooner blame ourselves than to consider that this person who we respect or or want to to trust has has you know violated that trust and mm-hmm. it can feel quite powerless when you know someone who you trusted has harmed you um, it's very disorienting everything we know about the world shifts and changes in that moment often and in order for us to try to make sense of that, um, for us to say this person is unsafe and unhealthy for me would be too much for us, mm-hmm. um, especially as children, it's too much for us. Uh, and so instead, what we often do is, is we blame ourselves. And that's why shame and trauma often, uh, you know, kind of go hand in hand. And, and, and there's that kind of adaptive survival function to shame in those settings. If I blame myself, if I'm the one at fault, if I gave off mixed messages, if I wasn't praying enough, if I've somehow caused this, then at least I, I can try to do something to change that. Mm. If I'm acknowledging that this person who has all this authority and power um, has behaved in a way that was harmful to me, um, I have a little power in that situation to do anything about that. And, and if I were to even acknowledge that it was harmful to me, uh, that might be overwhelming in the sense mm. of, you know, can I this attachment is no longer available to me anymore. And so, um, and it, we, we see this with, with, with younger children as well. You know, the parents get divorced and kids will say, if I would have cleaned my room more, they would still be together. Mm. If I were just nicer, they'd be together. You know, a loved one dies and, and kids will come up with lots of different stories. And, and what they're doing is trying to make sense of that, trying to, you know, mm-hmm. maintain this illusion of control. If I could have done something differently, then, you know, um, things wouldn't be this way. And so, you know, when that's already a natural kind of response to an overwhelming situation, and then you have, you know, spiritual leaders who exploit that, um, 
it is your fault. <laughs> um, yep. It, or or mm-hmm. it's Satan's fault or it's sin's fault or, or whatever. That There's just this way of, of excusing that. Um, but but so often survivors will, will take that on themselves. And, and the reason we do that is to try to maintain um, those relationships or that connection. Mm, yeah, I never I never heard it articulated that way that that self-shame or self-blame is a form yeah. of retaining agency and like it, getting your yes. agency back. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, that we do it, that, you know, you know that I know it really is. is. Yeah, it was really a light bulb moment for me when I when I uh, learned about that. I think um, Gabor um, Mate and, and, and Lawrence Heller, I was listening to a podcast they were doing to um, folks who are really in the in the um, trauma field, and and when they talked about um, that as an adaptive survival response, and, and I think mm-hmm. you know looking at all of our trauma responses, they serve a survival function for us. It makes sense for us to freeze, collapse. When we have no other option, it makes sense for us to please and appease mm-hmm. a powerful abuser um, when we don't have any other options. Um, and so, you know, I think there is a way of kind of taking some power back in those moments, as opposed to there's something wrong with me or I shouldn't have done that. There's mm-hmm. there's a recognition, uh, you know, recognizing that it did serve a function for me. Now I don't want to live there all the time. Right. Do something to resolve that. Um, but again, just taking away that stigma, that shame, that somehow I'm the blame, you know, the shame that. for the blame. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> for shame, sure. for, shame for blaming yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. So what might be a reason it would be important for someone to make a distinction between the term spiritual abuse or religious trauma? Why might that difference be yeah. important? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I, I tend to um, respect and value a, a person's language and how they're describing their experience. And so, um, you know, if a person's saying that they've experienced spiritual abuse um, and they're not ready to acknowledge, you know, how that presents in their body as trauma, um, it's perfectly okay to go with you mm-hmm. know, that, that term. I think the reason why it's important to distinguish between those two, though, is um, if we say that the um, trauma exists in the event itself, then we would assume that everyone in this church um, who's hearing this message is being treated in this particular way would experience that as trauma, and that's just simply not mm. the case. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when, when we were kind of developing um, the concept of, of PTSD, um, you know, I think when was it in, in the early 80s is when PTSD was included in, in the DSM. There was still this focus on the severity of the event. And the assumption was um, if you witness something or experience something that was really horrific, uh, then that would result in trauma. What we know is that three people can watch the same, you know, car accident unfold in front of them. One, nervous, one person's nervous system rushes to offer assistance, another person runs away, um, another person you know, becomes paralyzed and, and frozen in, in that spot. And, and we would say, well, if, <clears throat> if you know, trauma exists in the events that, that you experience, um, then all three of them should have experienced trauma. And, and so when we think about trauma as a, as, as a result of a mismatch between our internal and external resources, and the demand that's placed on our system. And when that demand is more than our resources and it goes into a place of overwhelm, then then that's more likely to result in trauma. Um, 
that means that something that could be insignificant to one person's nervous system could be overwhelming to another. Mm-hmm. And so why I think this is important, especially as it relates to um, religious and spiritual communities, is because if we say, well, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't abuse, that wasn't so bad, like, why are you being affected this way? Um, I sometimes use the example of two siblings sitting in the same church, having in, living in the same family, having very similar experiences, um, and the brother is sitting there and hearing about hell or something and um, has a lot of power in a more patriarchal system, um, maybe feels that people deserve to go to hell because there's some vengeance or justice as part of their worldview and how they experience the world. And so they hear that message and, and they're, they're, they're good, like it has very little impact to them. The sister's sitting there experiencing the same message uh, because of the, the lack of access to power and control in, in certain communities. Um, the potential that, you know, even if I'm safe and okay from hell, um, it doesn't feel right that other people are going to hell, people who I know. And uh, that can be experienced as, as quite overwhelming to them. And so um, if, if we aren't centering religious trauma on the, the response that an individual has to that, um, then we can excuse a lot of harm, saying, like, well, it didn't bother me, so it shouldn't have bothered you. Mm-hmm. Not recognizing that we have different experiences, we have different access to resources, and, and, and we don't, when we center that on, on the abuse itself, then we don't have to consider the systemic issues, the, the context in which it happens, how that's also impacting folks. Um, when we center that on the, the individual's experience themselves, um, then we can fairly reliably, you know, identify trauma based upon a nervous system's response. We don't need to even know what the event was um, because the, the trauma exists in that response, not in the event itself. And, and so I, I think it's helpful in those ways. Um, it, it, it makes it less likely that folks can easily dismiss a person's experience because, well, it wasn't that significant to them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that that distinction might be helpful in, um, yeah, in that um, church experience where um, there's abuse and maybe that abuse is uh, is pretty um, pretty objective. Maybe like it's not like a subjective situation, mm-hmm. but yeah. then people are going to have different responses to Absolutely. that and different levels yeah. mm-hmm. in yeah. what they experience, and so there's that okay, we need to address that this happened and right. objectively should not have happened. And then yeah. we have to care for the trauma and the level of trauma mm-hmm. that occurred for different individuals. So that's, yeah, right. that's really helpful. Yeah. Really helpful. yeah and I, I think also that allows us to, um, to focus more on how those things are impacting folks as opposed to, well, this is, what we believe this is how we do things here just the way it, it doesn't is. really matter how it, yeah, how, <laughs> yeah. how it impacts other folks but when we're when we're mm-hmm. noticing that yeah if we want to reduce trauma we want to um create safer context um and and and, and create conditions where folks can defend themselves they can speak up they can get the help they need they can have some power in those experiences um yeah i, I think another thing that um is worth mentioning that there's no such thing as an organization that's safe for humans. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not as nefarious as, as it might sound. It just is pointing out 
a pretty obvious um, reality within organizations that they will value the needs of the group more than the needs of individual mm -hmm. members. And and so if we were to um, just disclose that in our religious communities, yeah, we're not trying to harm you. Um, if you've ever had surgery or had a medical procedure um, and you read the informed consent, you know, you're signing saying, I may actually die during this surgery. <laughs> you know, I'm right. not going to try to harm you. Like, we're going to try to prevent mm -hmm. that from happening. But there is the possibility that you'll be harmed in this. And, mm -hmm. and you're, you're recognizing that. And so just from that perspective alone, um, then, you know, members of, of a group can look for the red flags, can, you know, find ways of you know, protecting and defending themselves. And, and it's safe uh, and, to say yes. this could be unhealthy yes. and not get, you know, shamed or ostracized by right. pointing out yes. something that's unhealthy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there, there's just a lot of honesty and respect in, in, in that kind of consent. Um, we're not going to intentionally harm you, but it's, it's possible that we will. And if we do, here's the recourse you have. Here's how you can navigate that. That will likely be the difference between experiencing religious abuse and that becoming trauma. Absolutely. If I have recourse, if I can do something about that, here's how you hold people accountable. Here's how we will be accountable in these situations. Then, um, yeah, I think that... It, and unfortunately, that doesn't exist in, in many religious communities where there is a right. sense of we're right and our beliefs are true and if it and if it harms you well then there's something wrong with you we don't have to take any mm -hmm. accountability or responsibility for how we're harming you and um yeah just that lack of consent is, is really huge it, it creates you know this power and control dynamic where um, folks don't have the the resources and the recourse they need to to navigate that wow yeah no that's a i think that's a great idea i've been trying to think of like what what is the what is the uh, because it is going to happen? It's not a it's not a question of yeah. if it's a question of right. when. And so, yeah. what is the what do we do in that situation? So I think that that's awesome. Um, yeah. As we wrap up, um, just real quick, I would love to hear if you can do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like that unique aspect for someone who has experienced trauma in a religious community, because there is a unique healing aspect for that specific yeah. experience. What are some, yeah, what is a, the unique healing aspect of that? Yeah, I, I think um, I can speak maybe more directly to some of the more fundamentalist um, like kind of religious groups. So much of, of that experience exists in the mind. It exists in the beliefs and the identity. Um, and, and there's this, um, we're taught to distrust our bodies often. And, and so um, sometimes we, we think the healing is a matter of thinking differently or, you know, mm -hmm. deconstructing the theology. Um, what often happens, and this happens really frequently, where folks can deconstruct the idea of hell, um, they no longer, no longer believe in a hell, and yet they, um, their body still has this very strong response to the idea of hell. And, and so we, we can't think ourselves out of that. We can't deconstruct ourselves out of trauma because when we first experience hell or we experience hell over time in a religious community, that didn't result in trauma because it was a pretty horrific belief or idea. 
but um, it, it resulted in trauma because in, I just use myself as an example, kind of white knuckling the pew in front of me in a religious service where hell is being you know, preached. And I needed to escape to safety. You know, like my mind body saying this is unsafe. There's a, a real or perceived threat. I need to escape. And I wasn't able to because there was too much power control in that setting. I needed to fight and defend myself. I needed to stand up and say, no, I know what you're doing. How dare you, you know, threaten me and, and use fear to control me. This is not okay. But I was unable to do that. And so I, I had to go into you know, a freeze collapse response. And I didn't choose to do that, but my nervous system did what was necessary to survive that overwhelming situation. And so then I can, you know, years later, you know, come to a place where I, I don't believe in how um, it, I can, you know, study the history of that and see how it was, you know, something that, you know, was added much later to the Bible. And I mean, there's endless books that you can, you know, read and study about this idea of where did it come from, how did it function in, in, in the church. And, and yet my body doesn't care about any of those, you know, new beliefs right. and understandings. My body just yeah. wants to feel safe. And so mm -hmm. I think what, what's, what's unique in, in terms of resolving religious trauma, um, at least the, the more embodied approach that, that, that I tend to prefer, is that it's recognizing that you need to do something now to um, kind of create a, a condition where you, you can physically push back or say what needs to be said. And so if you were to imagine yourself standing up in that, that church service and walking out mm. and pushing back, and all of a sudden you realize like, whoa, like that feels really powerful or really strong. <sighs> and then I can, you know, mm -hmm. once we move into that aggressive, powerful state and then move through that, um, that results in a sense of safety. And, and, and that communicates directly to our nervous system through that felt sense. Um, no amount of, you know, thinking about it differently resolves that trauma there is that need to complete that survival response that was was incomplete um, because the situation was too overwhelming and so i think um bringing um you know coming home to our bodies as it were trusting our nervous system um beginning to identify how it's reacting responding to various situations and then giving our bodies what we need to feel safer stronger and more connected um i think that's um you know, it, it's it's not unique in terms of resolving religious trauma. Right. It's it's a very common, uh, you know, approach to resolving trauma, but I think it's unique um, in that a lot of times folks are trying to navigate this in a spiritual place or in their mind, because that's the context in which they. I mean, that's what they know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a, it's a lot about thought control. And if I have an unhelpful or unhealthy thought, I need to challenge that or change that or think about differently. And, and just realizing that, that won't necessarily resolve the trauma. Uh, there needs to be some, some work done in a more embodied way. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I think that's a good distinction to make of not trying to go into the cerebral mm -hmm. and deal with it in the cerebral, which is where the deconstruction comes into play. Sure. And that might yeah. happen too, but that's not enough if, yes. if there's trauma. Yeah. Like there yeah. has to be that embodied healing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's that's really helpful. Yeah. And yeah. Even in that more philosophical kind of cognitive space of deconstruction, um, just going through that process and having those conversations, saying things out loud, there is an embodied quality. That's true. That often that we're unaware of. You know, Very true. Even, you know, straight yeah. up, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, just talk therapy. Um, 
you that can be very helpful and can be embodied in ways that we don't recognize. It's another nervous system that's helping you co-regulate in that moment. Um, it's not the words you're saying. It's not the new thoughts or beliefs you're having as much as it's another person validating that experience, you know, feeling, mm. like feeling that moment. Um, mm. that, that tends to be the, the more powerful healing element. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And we're encountering someone going through that. It's not an opportunity for us to panic. Where are, where are yeah. they going with this? Yeah. It's like, no, it's, yeah. this is part of the healing yeah. process. It's like, yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, this is, yeah, that's really awesome. Well, thank you yeah. so much. Oh, I you, kept you sure. longer than. Oh, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. But As you know, amazing. we could talk all day on this. Yeah. <laughs> we sure. could. We could. Yes. Yeah. This was, this was awesome. I really appreciate yeah. it. Everyone watching, uh, check out. Uh, Brian's Instagram profile, Religious Trauma Institute. I follow them. They have great content, great resources. So definitely check that out. Um, and I really appreciate this. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I wish you all the best with your move as well. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Talk right. about trauma. We'll well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> definitely overwhelming. All right. All right. All right. Have care. a good day. Bye-bye. Right, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.